Well, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those gathered in Lakeville. Invite all of you, if you would, to please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are delighted uh, to have you with us. We've been in a series now the last few weeks called No Going Back. And we're looking at a book in Scripture that, that really challenges us in our faith. There are times that we go through that uh, we just kind of feel like giving up, quitting, just throwing in the towel, Uh, Just not sure we can keep going. And and this book is really designed to challenge us to keep pressing forward, to not give up, and to keep moving on in faith. And so this morning we come to Hebrews 4. Uh, We'll look back a little bit into chapter 3, but for our scripture reading, uh, let's begin here in uh, Hebrews 4, verse 1. Invite all of you, if you're able, uh, to stand to please do so as we honor the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world." For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we ask God to come teach us? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together this morning. Uh, the wonderful worship uh, that we've had, just praising your name. Lord, now the time to, to come to your word. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Pray that we would listen to what you are saying to us. Lord, that we would receive what you have to say to us this morning. I believe that the Holy Spirit is among us, the Spirit of truth, and he will guide us into truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you do that all to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, and God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, fall is finally here, is it not? Can you feel it? You can, you can kind of feel it in the air. You can uh, see it in a lot of the colors that are starting to change. You also notice it because a lot of the, the symbols of fall start to show up everywhere. In fact, there's one particular symbol of fall that you will see almost everywhere you go. You'll notice them on front porches and decorating store windows. They'll be advertised at your favorite coffee shop or, or bakery. In fact, some of you have even taken your children or grandchildren to pick one out. I'm referring to that very famous fall icon known as the pumpkin. And one of the things that people will do with their pumpkin is they will take it and they will carve it. Uh, They'll carve a face 
uh, in it. Uh, they'll take out all the guts and they'll put a light inside and they'll, they'll place it out in the night. It's, it's what we know as a jack-o'-lantern. Now, this morning, I have no intention of ruining your fall activities, okay? Uh, in fact, for the record, my kids do the same thing, so I'm not trying to offend you. But I wonder how many of us really know the story behind the, the jack-o'-lantern. It's actually an Irish legend from Irish folklore about a man named Jack. Jack was a drunkard. A man that lived a very rebellious, sinful life and on several occasions had tricked the devil out of taking his soul. The problem was, according to the legend, that when Jack died, he wasn't good enough to get into heaven and so God rejected him and sent him to hell. But when he got to hell, the devil rejected him. You know you're having a bad day when. <laughs> the devil rejected him from hell because of all the times that Jack had tricked him. And so instead, he, he, he took a, the devil took a, a piece of coal burning with hellfire, put it inside a, a turnip, and sent Jack out into the night. The result of all this was what became a man who was wandering around aimlessly in the dark. Jack was a man that did not have a home. He did not have a friend, a man that was never able to find peace. Listen, everybody, Faith Family Lakeville, he, he, he was constantly haunted by a feeling of restlessness. Now, that story's not true. You heard it here, all right? That story is not true, but it does represent something that is true. That is, that story represents the kind of person that can't find rest. That person that's always anxious, always wandering, always worried, never able to find peace. And that is something all of us have experienced at some point. You know that feeling of tossing and turning in the bed at night, worried about a conversation you got to have the next day. That anxious feeling of not knowing how you're going to pay the bills this month. The knots in the stomach, uh, waiting outside the hospital room on the diagnosis. Pacing the floor at night, worried about when your daughter is going to come home or that haunting feeling of a past that never stops howling. Every one of us at some point knows that feeling of restlessness. It's exactly how these Hebrew Christians feel. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that they have been persecuted for their faith. They have been slandered publicly. They have had their property stolen. It has been one punch after another, and they are tired. They want to just give up. They want to quit. And they've started wandering. They've started to become restless in their faith. And the author realizes this. And so now he picks up this theme of, of rest. And, and what he wants them to know, what he wants them to understand is something so important for every single one of us to know. And it's this. You are never going to find rest in rebellion. 
Look at verse 15, back in chapter 3. The author says here, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Now, you should underline verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So remember, there's no chapter divisions when the author is writing this, and so he's continuing this conversation uh, about their ancestors, about Israel in the wilderness, about the rebellion that happened long ago. You remember when Israel had experienced the redeeming grace of God. They'd been brought out of Egypt. They had experienced God's blessing, God's miracles, and he's promised them a promised land. And in that promised land, he has promised them rest. They will rest from their enemies. They will finally be at peace. All this journey of slavery will be over. But what happened? Instead of entering into that rest, Israel rebelled. And what happened as a result of their rebellion? They became just like Jack. Wanderers. Never having peace. Always worried about this and that. Constantly grumbling about life. They became, as a result of their rebellion, restless. And if you go back and look at their rebellion, some of the things that, that would have been the episodes of the rebellion back in the wilderness, it doesn't seem all that significant on the surface. It doesn't seem like all that big of a deal. Let me give you just one episode in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 2. It says, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Which, by the way, is the exact same thing happening in Numbers 14 when they reject the report of the spies. Now, my point is this. That doesn't seem very serious. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Let, let me illustrate it for you to try to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Imagine that you're in a small group. Imagine that you're in a, your missional community and you decide you're just going to have a night where you shared testimonies. Right, what's the rebellion? What's the sin that God saved you out of? And, and one lady says, I'll go, I'll go. Uh, I was a Las Vegas showgirl and I lived the Las Vegas showgirl life. And God saved me out of that. And you're like, wow, that is impressive. Praise the Lord. Somebody else stands up and says, oh, that's nothing. You ought to hear my testimony. Uh, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. <laughs> and everybody just looks around and says, oh, what, what rebellion God saved you out of. And, and somebody else sits up and says, oh, I used to listen to Brad Paisley's song, Alcohol, all day long and do crack. That was my life every single day and twice on Sunday. 
and they're just like, oh, what an, um, what rebellion God saved you out of. And then somebody else says, oh, those testimonies are nothing. You're never going to believe what God saved me out of. One morning I woke up thirsty. Yeah. You know, the kind of thirst where your tongue kind of sticks to the top of your mouth. I mean, really thirsty. And I went downstairs. You're not going to believe this. I went downstairs and there wasn't anything to drink in the entire house. And I got really, really mad at God. And God saved me out of that. Nobody's gasping at that. Nobody, you rebel, you like what a, what a, what a rebellious heart you have. Nobody's thinking that. And that's because we do not understand. Listen to me, faith family, the subtle sin of unbelief. That's the issue in verse 19. Look at it again. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The issue wasn't their grumbling. It's what their grumbling over water was covering up. Namely, a heart that didn't trust God. They had experienced God in so many incredible ways, and yet they don't trust him now. The question they are asking is this, is God with us or not? That is the exact same question that you and I ask in our suffering, is it not? Is God with me? Does God care? Is he anywhere around? Here's the issue. Notice it on the screen that people who have experienced God's grace in salvation are still questioning his grace in suffering. Somebody say, preach, preacher. That is so true for all of us, is it not? We've experienced an exodus. We've experienced salvation. But then when life gets hard and suffering comes into our life, it's almost we're like, God who? Does he even care? We go through the wilderness of life and forget everything we know and everything we've experienced in God. That's why, faith family, jot this down. Your greatest threat is not the atheism in the world. It's the atheism in your heart. Richard Dawkins is not your concern. Your inability to trust God for even things like water is... It is an atheism because you say in your doctrinal statement that you believe in the doctrine of God, but you live as though there is no God. That's the subtle sin of unbelief. Spurgeon, as he always does, says it much better than I do. Spurgeon says, quote, this unbelief of mine, that is this lack of trusting, is a great wrong in the sight of God. Now listen to this. Because he's never given me any occasion for it. And I am doing him a cruel injustice by doubting him. I must not sit idly by and say that this has come upon me like a fever, which I cannot help. I must rather say this is a great sin in which I must no longer indulge. I must confess my unbelief so there will be, not be in me an evil heart of unbelief. 
Uh, Bonnie McKernan writes uh, a testimony in her life, and I really hope that you'll listen to this because this is super practical. She talks about the, the, the subtle sin of unbelief in her life when she says, quote, I once sat in the hospital room and watched my incoherent eight-year-old battle a life-threatening blood clot. I was oddly calm. I clung to the goodness of God and did my best to trust that he held my son in his hands. It's easy to look back at times of seemingly big faith and pat myself on the back. But now, not even a year later, I'm losing my temper with that now nine-year-old boy as he fights with his brother. I'm weary from a hard move that's not finished. I'm worried about a house that needs to sell. I'm stressed about finances in the future. I'm losing my cool over a leaking washing machine in a kitchen taken over by ants. I feel far from God. My quiet times when they happen seem shallow. My prayers feel weak. I'm stripped of my usual security, home, church, ministry, and support system. And what's left isn't pretty. And then she asks, why? Why is the God I placed my trust in at the moment of my salvation any less good When I am navigating my second hour in line at the DMV with weeping children? Some of you relate, eh? And then she says this, even though I'd still vehemently defend the absolute sovereignty of God, my actions often reveal an unbelief that speaks louder than my words. Faith family, what Is it this morning that you feel like you can't trust God with? And don't you say nothing. What is it? Some of you refuse to give financially because deep down you don't really believe God will provide for you. Some of you this morning are bitter at a loss, a personal loss that has happened in your life because you don't really deep down believe that God has a bigger plan that maybe you just don't understand. You and I grumble when life gets hard. Listen to me, because we really don't think that the one that got us out of Egypt can get us through the wilderness. It's Subtle, it's just grumbling over water. But underneath that grumbling is a question, is God for me or not? And the author is saying here to these Hebrew Christians, here's the point. Rebellion, in the context here that is unbelief, rebellion, not trusting God in your suffering, leads to restlessness. You've got to underline verse 19. It is their lack of faith that kept them from entering in. They did not get rest because they could not believe. Faith family, sin will never bring you peace. Rebellion will never bring you rest. Don't you see, Hebrews? You think if you go back, you'll find rest. And I'm telling you that if you go back, you'll be restless all your days. Why go back to that which is sin, that which makes you restless when you could have rest 
in a Savior. Verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news, that is, the gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here's what he's saying as we, again, it's chapter four for us. He's saying, you do realize, hey, everybody listen, listen, Lakeville, come on, right? You do realize that in your restlessness, there's a real rest that you can experience. Do you believe that? That in all the chaos of your life, all the commotion, those days when you feel like you're the pinball in a pinball game, just being knocked around every which way, you do realize that you can still have peace in all that chaos. There is rest. Now, the question would be, what rest are you talking about? Because the rest that was offered to Israel isn't relevant anymore in this sense. The answer isn't everybody go get on a plane and fly to a plot of ground in the Middle East and you'll find rest there. That is not the answer now. What is it? The author takes us back all the way to creation. Look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He takes us back to creation. He says, you know this, on the seventh day that God rested. Now, why did God rest? Well, obviously, he was unbelievably exhausted. I mean, all those mountains he had to make and all that water. And then human beings, what a chore, right? I mean, he was so tired. Who wouldn't? That's not why God rested. God rested, and you might, like, though, everybody, you might want to listen to the language about to come out of my mouth. God rested because his work was finished. He created on the sixth day. He looks and sees that it is very good. It is finished, and then he rested. It was complete. It was over. And that's what was being imaged in the promised land. That is the rest in Canaan. Uh, your journey of slavery is going to be finished when you reach the promised land. It's going to be complete. You'll have rest from your enemies. It'll be finished. But that was just something pointing you to something greater. You know why? Well, David talked about rest. Even after Joshua, rest was still talked about. In other words, that wasn't the ultimate rest. That was just pointing you to the ultimate rest, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, well, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What's he saying? Joshua led them to a place, but real rest is found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, you say, how can you say that? Because, I'm going to get excited, because back in creation, what, why does God rest? Because it was finished. What does Jesus say on the cross? He says, say it with me, it is finished. He is the rest you've been waiting for. Now, how many of y'all remember the Ten Commandments series this summer? Okay. It was just this summer. Okay. Now, if you're visiting with us, you get a pass. The rest of you, how dare you? 
Now, I don't have the time this morning to go through it, but I would refer you back to the, the morning, the, the, the weekend when we looked at the Sabbath command, and I showed you there in the New Testament how Jesus is the Sabbath. It wasn't about a day. It wasn't about a, a plot of ground. All of those things were pointing you to the ultimate thing, the ultimate Joshua, the ultimate Yeshua, namely Jesus. So if he's the place of peace, if he's the person of peace, how do you enter in? Verse 2, for good news has come to us just as to them, but the message they heard, they did not, did not benefit them because they were not united by what? They were not united by? Lakeville, I want to hear you. They were not united by? Faith. In other words, you enter in to the person of peace by faith. Here's the simple, practical point, and oh, I hope it will minister to your heart this morning. Here it is. You will never be at peace until you learn to trust the Prince of Peace. You really think going back to that thing and going back to that relationship and going back to her or him or that addiction or, or that substance, you really think that's going to give you peace, but you know good and well it's going to leave you restless because here's the point, dear friend, you're never going to find the peace you're looking for until you find it in the Prince of Peace. Amen. He is the rest that remains for the people of God. That, that's how this passage, though it's a difficult passage, really, uh, it, it's what it's teaching us right here. Unbelief, not trusting, leads to restlessness. You will always be a wanderer. But faith in Jesus is what will give you rest even in your suffering, even in your hardship, when all around your soul gives way, he'll be all your hope and stay. That's rest. Now, if that's what the passage is teaching us, let's take the next couple hours and unpack, just making sure you're awake. Like, what are those, what are those, so, so imagine this, all right, come on, get, get, get in the metaphor with me, because uh, he's using the, the nation of Israel. What are those giants that are keeping us from entering in rest. Because it, it could very well be that we're much like Israel. That is, we don't enter in because we're not living based on faith. So what are those giants that would say, no, 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 turn around and just go back? But the problem is what you find there is restlessness. Let me give you three. The first one, and the reason why these are enemies to real rest is because they're not based on faith. They're based on works. The first, which won't surprise you, is religion will keep you from rest. Religion will keep you from rest. Now, I say religion because these Christians are considering going back to the rituals of Judaism. Let's just go back and go through the motions. Let's just go back and do church. Let's just do temple. We'll just go through the motions. And the author is going to say later in the book, have you read your Old Testament? There was always something else to do. It never stopped. It wasn't, oh, come on, it wasn't finished. 
It was always ongoing, something else, something else, something else, something else, something else. Religion is exhausting. It's tiring. It's only in Jesus that it is finished once and for all. Otherwise, there's another sacrament to perform. There's another confession to make, another Bible study to attend. It's a system based on works and not by faith. Martin Luther knew this well. Uh, Some of you know this. He lived before I would say he was truly converted. He lived in constant fear, completely immersed in a religious system. Uh, History tells us that he had heart palpitations, crying spells, profuse sweating, was convinced he was going straight to hell. Uh, One of his friends said that the terrors afflicted him so greatly that he literally almost died. And you want to live in that kind of system? But then Luther had a breakthrough. He finally found freedom. He finally found rest. And here's his own words. He said, quote, I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness through which the grace and mercy of God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors of paradise. Lakeville, bringing everybody right here. Religion will wear you out. And until you realize this thing is about a relationship with a person and not a religion full of routine, you'll never be at peace. You'll never be at peace. I had a guy come up to me last night after the Saturday night service, like wanting to break my neck off. He hugged me so hard because he said, pastor, that's my story. For years, I was living a religious game, and it is only in the last couple of years that I have found the freedom of the gospel, and my soul is finally at rest. And I said, praise God. That's the transformation of the gospel. Golf clap, really, right? Either clap or don't, all right? I got you, Lakeville. I got you, right? I'm just telling you, faith family, because, because I love you, religion will wear you out. It's exhausting. Jesus brings peace. So don't let religion be that enemy that keeps you from entering in. Secondly, uh, another enemy that keeps us from entering in uh, is what I would call self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will keep you from rest. Now, here's what I mean by self-righteousness. That is our constant effort to cover our sins with good deeds. It is our personal acts of righteousness. It's our trying to be good enough to justify ourselves before God and others. It's our attempt to balance the scales in our life. But you will never find rest until you come out from under your good works and admit your condition. Do you really want rest? Do you really want peace? You have to come out from hiding. Look at verse 13 in chapter 4. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are what? I just want to make you say that. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, that, that language is Adam and Eve imagery. 
right? Nakedness, uh, being exposed. That, that we all know what happened in the garden. Uh, that that um, they were naked and not ashamed, and then sin entered in, and they started hiding. They started covering themselves up. And, and so what I'm saying is that ever since the fall, human beings have been trying to hide themselves under the fig leaves of good works. Like, we know what our condition is, but we think if we can just cover ourselves up enough by acts of righteousness and morality, that maybe we can justify ourselves. But here's what you must come to grips with this morning. You will never find Sabbath rest until you are spiritually naked. That is not, by the way, an invitation for you to remove your clothes this morning. That would be a very awkward altar call, all right? Just, (laughs) all right, that is not what we're suggesting. It's spiritual nakedness. Here's what I'm saying, right? Lakeville, Berean, listen. You know you're at rest when you stop hiding from God. You know you're at rest when you stop hiding from God. You're you're spiritually naked. That is, you, you, you have come clean with who you are. There's no peace until that happens. You say, well, well how do I get, as we would say in the South, naked? All right, how, how, how does that... Y'all are uncomfortable with this biblical language I'm using, right? How does that happen? How, how, How does that take place? Well, the author tells us, look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, the discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you know how this spiritual nakedness happens? The word of God cuts you. You lay yourself today on the operation table of the Word of God. And it cuts, and it slices, and it convicts, and it exposes, but you find peace. It painful? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's the only way you enter in. Let me illustrate it this way. In Chronicles of Narnia, there's a boy named Eustace that's turned into a dragon uh, because of his sin. And uh, Aslan, who represents God, takes him to the top of a mountain where there's a garden and a well. And, and Eustace believes that if he could just get in that water, that he could finally be cleansed of his sin. But Aslan says, before you do that, you're going to have to undress. And then Eustace remembers that, that, that as a dragon, his, his skin can shed. And so he begins to rip off his skin. And he, he takes off one layer only to find that there's another layer underneath that's even more disgusting. And he takes off that layer only to realize there's another layer underneath that that's even more disgusting. And after removing three layers of his own skin he finally realizes he can't make himself clean. And Aslan looks at him and says, you will have to let me undress you. 
And Eustace, fearing Aslan's claws, lays down on his back. And it says the first tear was so deep, it was as though he'd pierced his heart. But when it was all over, he had on new clothes. You want peace? You're going to have to let the Prince of Peace cut your heart. There is no hiding anymore. And the good news of the gospel is you don't have to hide before God. Here's why. Jesus gives you the freedom to be honest about who you are because you know how much you're loved. He already knows anyways. When he asks Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know. It's because they don't. It's time to enter in to peace. Religion will keep you from rest. Self-righteousness will keep you from rest because justifying yourself is exhausting. And lastly... Rebellion will keep you from rest. I take this from the fact that Israel in the wilderness rebelled. That's clear in the text. These Hebrew Christians are considering rebellion. They're considering turning around and going the other way. And it reminds me of, of, a, of a, one of my favorite stories, favorite characters in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Jonah. And there are some of you here today like Jonah you're just in all-out rebellion to God. Look at Jonah 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind. So he's in a storm that's happening upon the sea, and, and, on, and the ship is being threatened to, to break up, verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah... <laughs> Oh, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, you might say, if you're not familiar with the story, oh, look, Jonah's resting. He's not resting. You can be asleep and not be at rest. In fact, sometimes your sleep can be nothing more than your makeup or cover-up for your restlessness. Jonah's not resting. Jonah goes to sleep because he doesn't give a rip anymore. You're telling me you want me to go that way? Well, guess what? Here's the middle finger. I'm going that way. I don't care what the word of the Lord says. God, I don't care where you're calling me to go. I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And when he sees the storm coming and the suffering comes, he just goes to sleep because he doesn't care if he dies. And there are some of you here today, that is where you are. You've lost affections for God. You are numb to anything spiritual. You're still in church, check. You still consider yourself a Christian, check. But when you hear the word of God proclaimed, you shrug 
and turn over in your comfortable seat and go to sleep. Jonah had to learn, and if that's you, you're going to have to learn this. You listening? Running from God is exhausting. And Jonah finally will find rest at the bottom of the sea. What giant is keeping you from entering in? What giant is keeping you from it? There is a rest for the people of God. The question we must answer this morning from this text is this. Why would you slip back to a restless life of rebellion when you could strive forward and find rest in Jesus Christ? Faith family, there are some of you today just like Jack. Just like Israel. Just like these Hebrew Christians, you're, you're wandering in the darkness of the night, the darkness of your faith. And, and it may not appear to be anything big. It may just be grumbling over water. But you don't feel like you have a home. You don't feel like you can find peace. You are restless. Like Peter that day in the sea, as the storm is raging and he was drowning. That's how some of you feel today. But do you remember what Peter did that brought him peace in the storm? All he did was say three words, Lord, save me. And the prince of peace reached down grabbed Peter, placed him back in the boat, and the Bible says the winds and the waves ceased. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this challenging word to us. I know that there are, there are many in this place, many in Lakeville, many that just feel that restlessness. And I pray this morning that we would enter in by faith to the person of rest, Christ Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest. He is the one that we can say, even when all the storms are going on around me, it's finished. It's finished. My identity is complete. My salvation is complete. My eternity is complete. I can rest. I can rest. I have a God that I can trust, not just in salvation, but even in suffering. And if there's somebody here today, and, and God, they don't have a relationship with you. They have, they have never entered in by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray today would be that day that they would just say, I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted. Give me peace. Holy Spirit, come convict, come lead us and help us enter in. In Jesus' name, amen.